Welcome back to Subject to Cross. I'm your host, Caroline Donato. And uh, I'm Pete Kratza. I don't know, if you're the host, what am I? You're a co-host. Oh, am I? Okay. Yeah. All right. I'm a co-host. Or now. you could be host and I can be co-host. I thought I, thought I was a guest every week. <laughs> you're a guest. <laughs> Interloper. Our special that's guest. A, that's, a, that's a 50 cent word. Interloper? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know what it means? No. Miss Starry Decisis. Trespasser. Well, you're not trespassing. No, I, I invited no. you here. Oh, I put you in that corner. <laughs> Business invitee. Let me make sure I got that right. Go ahead. I'm looking up interloper. Okay, so this, Sometimes these words just come to me. This episode is about secrets of criminal defense lawyers. And we decided to do this because last time we had an episode basically delineating. Some, that was your episode, Pete. I think it was episode three. That got some good traction and people enjoyed it when we outlined what was that can i define interloper for you because this is, this is perfect go ahead a person who becomes involved in a place or situation where they are not wanted <laughs> or are considered not to belong now you you belong all right thanks go ahead uh so last time we did kind of a countdown of criminal defense itemization what was the topic Oh, like that, I think, well, the one was by the top judge. Top 10 observations of yeah, a criminal of cr- defense lawyer? Yeah, what, what we do best, I guess, right? What criminal defense lawyers do best. Yeah. The best, best characteristics of criminal defense lawyers. Something like that. Yeah. Episode three, I think. But Whoa. How many episodes have we had? I think this will be 17. Wow. I mean, right. We took a six months. So this is like season two. Oh, no, two. this might be Is 18. this season two or season three? We Since we it. had a six-month break, we, we it's a new season. We can call it season two. Welcome to season two. Subject COVID to era. COVID era. Um, we are social distancing. Pete's in a corner, and I'm about eight feet away from him. So this with much more room. I by have. The way. I can put my arms yeah. out and up. If I want to break, I my can arm, do some I yoga could. over here. Okay. So this is secrets of criminal defense lawyers. I I found this mental floss article, and more than anything, I think it's going to promote some interesting conversation here. But the art I hate the term mental floss, by the way. That's disgusting. Well, I think it's the name of a website. Yeah, I know, but it's just gross. You're putting the visual. floss in your brain? Yeah, yeah, it's disgusting. Okay. So here's how this article starts out. And it, it's, it lists 18 secrets of criminal defense attorneys. We're going to go through them fairly quickly, maybe at a sprinkle of our own. Say what we agree with and what we don't. Uh, and we will not go through all 18. We might. Oh, all right. Well, it just depends. If you're not quick. Then... Some of them were stupid. I know. We, right. we don't agree My with article was better. I'm sorry. I, I hate to make it competitive, but this was a good find, and maybe it'll provoke some conversation, but I disagreed with a lot of the things that Are these you... guys said. So did I. I oh, think it's... good. I know. Well, but we need to disagree if it's going to be, like, at all interesting. Well, sometimes when we agree, you tell the listeners we're disagreeing because oh, right. <laughs> it makes you feel good. And then you tell everyone that you won. Right. <laughs> so. It's the role of the interloper. <laughs> All right. So this is how the article starts out, just to give some context. And we don't agree with how it starts out. <laughs> it's one of the more thankless jobs in the legal arena. Criminal defense attorneys who stand beside clients accused of everything from minor offenses to mass murder must mount the most effective defense of their client possible, no matter how heinous the crime. While their work enforces a person's constitutional right to a fair trial, some observers chastise them for representing society's villains. In their view, that's missing the point. In addition to making sure the scales of justice are balanced, 
criminal defense attorneys find satisfaction in tackling cases with high stakes. It's an all-or-nothing game, says Jeffrey Lichtman. Is that right, Pete? That's how I pronounce it. A New York-based attorney who has represented John A. Gotti and accused Mexican drug lord El Chapo. It's win or lose. Quote, there is pressure, excitement, and responsibility in being criminal, a criminal defendant's only protector and support. To better understand this emotionally draining work, Mental Floss spoke with three high-profile defense attorneys, and they gave their itemization of all their secrets. And that is what these next 18 items are, which Pete and I are kind of excited to rip apart. Do you have any issues? Oh, and here's, here's how they end the introduction. Here's what they shared about life as a devil's advocate. Yeah, I told you before we started recording, I don't like um, being called the devil's advocate. Or um, someone who represents society's I mean, villains. Most of the people we represent aren't villains. They Not at are, all. They're accused of villainous deeds, but they are good people who've done things that are out of character. Now that's or not they the didn't same. do what they're being accused of. Oh yeah, that too. Or there's mitigation. That, that's one of the, the things in here, you know, representing the the innocent client. Um, but I think that it, it's painting with a broad brush to say that we're you know devil's advocates and representing society's worst. That's crap. I'd also say I I don't agree that it's a thankless job. Yeah, that I. I, we have to stop agreeing. No, it is. It's it. I what, what it is. Um, it it can actually be very rewarding, but what they also put in here is that it 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 is you know it's it's it can be uh, anxiety ridden. Um, it is high stakes. Uh, it is a lot of responsibility. But I wouldn't say it's thankless. I think at times. It's, well, you were never a public defender. A public defender, when I was a public defender, I would say it was basically pretty thankless. Okay. Because uh, most of the clients didn't trust you um, because, you know, they, they just viewed you as another arm of the government. Um, and you had to overcome that. And effective public defenders do. Um, and I considered myself an effective public defender. Um and the other thing, you know, the 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 reason it's thankless, for instance, especially when you're doing like the the you know the public advocacy work, is you would see um, people who are getting paid to do it and doing it terribly. Um, but just because somebody thought that they were paying them, you know, I'm going to get my you know, myself a paid lawyer. Okay, have at it. You know, go go pay that guy who's not going to do anything for you. So yeah, you can feel it's thankless at times. Um, but in private practice, I can't say that I've ever felt it's thankless. I felt like I've done a great job for someone and they weren't very appreciative of it. Um, or but, they didn't you know, understand. But it magnitude. helps when you're getting paid. You right. know what I mean? Mm -hmm. All right, let's go through these. Number one, secrets of criminal defense attorneys. Number one, attorneys don't allow their personal feelings to trump due process. What does that mean to you, Caroline? Why, without reading this, I think what it means is say... You didn't read the article. I did. I skimmed right. it. Right. Say say a client is accused of a pretty heinous crime. Mm -hmm. And uh, in our field of work, to prepare the most effective defense, we need to know really what happened. We've had that conversation in other episodes. Do we want to know what happened? I do, because yeah, that helps course. prepare the the best defense, whether that's mitigation, whether that... It's usually mitigation and damage control if... The client um, 
spills the beans. Spills the beans to, to the lawyer, and then you have to build to get the best possible resolution in light of that, that evidence. But sometimes a crime, and I've only come across this a couple times, sometimes a crime is just so bad. It's just so bad that if you're not careful and you don't value the client's constitutional rights and, and doing the best job you can for, for the client, I can see how a criminal defense lawyer could let their personal feelings get in the way of their advocacy. Um, I, I, I can remember the one case where I thought, man, how do I, how do I defend this? And then I figured it out. You're going to name that client? Nope. (laughs) But I figured it out. And it really went to the way to defend something that is just so heinous is, well, what is this person's constitutional right? What makes sense? And what is a legal argument that would effectively represent that person and put them in the best possible position in light of the aggravating circumstances and any mitigation? And I think if you maintain that perspective, then it's not hard to represent even the client who did something terrible. I think that's what that means. Yeah, I, I think we agree. Um, I've said before that, I think I have anyway, I don't know if I've said it on this podcast, but I've said it to you, that in my experience, having you know uh, done it for a long time, um, sometimes the worst defendants, in other words, the people that are viewed by the police and the prosecutor and probably society um, have the best cases um, because um, if you know the police don't like them, um, they're more likely to to do things that that maybe they shouldn't have done. I'm not saying you know like beat the hell out of them or anything, but um, you know uh, some uh, procedural issues. That, that would mitigate in favor of suppression, for instance. Mm-hmm. And I always, I think you gotta be wired a certain way to be a, a criminal defense attorney. You're not immoral, but a lot of times you're amoral. You know, I look at the facts. I look at, at what I can do for the person, um, for, you know, in terms of litigating, arguing law. But I also look for the good if it's a sentencing mitigation case for the good in the person, and there's always some good, there you know there's always a, an explanation. It's not an excuse, but an explanation. And you try to to explain, in that case, to a judge who's going to be sentencing that person, you know um, why they are why there's redemptive value in the person, and why they shouldn't just be warehoused. It's very rare that we represent people that a prosecutor is going to argue they should be warehoused and we don't have anything to argue, uh, you know, to the contrary. There are certain cases and you and I, you know, you, I think I have an idea what case you're talking about where you have to also with a client be very upfront and, uh, you know, honest and, and, um, realistic in terms of what it is exactly is you could do for that person if they're accused of horrific things. And if it's going to be able to be proven that they did those horrific things. But those cases are few and far between. I've always been able to find that, first of all, I, I think it helps to be competitive, right? And we're both competitive. And if I see an issue that I think could win a case for me, I don't, you know, the, the, what the person's accused of has no bearing on what I'm paid to do. I'm paid to keep the Commonwealth honest. I'm, 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 my, my function 
is to to be a, a check on the system. And if something was done wrong, then I got to prove to a judge uh, that it was done wrong or to a jury that it was done wrong. Um, I so. take issue with your use of the word amoral. Oh, really? And I Googled it just to make sure I knew what that word meant because it struck me as... Morals have no place in my representation of a client. But I, I think they... I think they do because when when you find a legal issue good we're disagreeing when you find a legal issue in a case that's what you're it, it's not amoral to acknowledge that the constitution affords certain safeguards and if the police did something wrong or if the commonwealth did something no you're wrong. missing my point okay the, what i'm talking about and what i think this uh point number one is talking about geez are we only on point yeah, right that's why we ain't doing 18 um <laughs> No, my, the, uh, the, 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 you know, the condemning of the act, the condemning of, uh, you know, you have a client who's accused of possessing, possessing, judgment, possessing, you know, horrendous child pornography. I'm amoral. So, you know, I don't, I don't judgment. minimize it. Right. I don't minimize judgmental. it. But just because somebody, you know, did or is accused of doing something horrific, I'm not going to turn my nose up right. and say, I can't help you. Okay. Now, listen, there are people in our in our community, in our legal community, in our criminal defense community here, who I know damn well do that. And I think that's horrible. Well, that's if, not if you don't an have the stomach, advocate. If you don't have the stomach for it, you know, if you don't like your clients, if you're going to disparage your clients, you know, uh, um, to, to uh, you know, the, the prosecutor and treat them with disdain, then don't be a freaking criminal defense attorney. Because that's not advocacy. I was impassioned there. No, you were. Okay, yeah. that makes sense, and I do agree with that. So right. when a client comes to you, there's a heinous act or some inculpatory evidence, and they are forthcoming about it or the evidence shows it, whatever it is, we're not judging the client. We're right. looking at the case for how can and we we're help not this advocating person. for the crime. We're advocating for an individual. We take a look at the facts of the case. We, we plot a defense if it's there. It has to be an ethical defense. Um... And you know what? If what my client did was so horrendous and the Commonwealth wants to prove that, then have at it. My job is to, to point out if they, if they can't. Um, I'm not being dishonest. I am being a check in the system. And I, you know, I like that role. Um, Me too. And, and uh, you know, personal feelings have nothing to do with it. You know, what I appreciate most about uh, uh, prosecutors are those that can divorce themselves from the emotions of a particular case. I think that the worst prosecutors are those that can't, um, that, that quote unquote, take it personally. Um, that doesn't mean they can't have compassion for the people that, that you know, are victims in, in cases that they represent, um, but it, it also doesn't mean that they, they, they shouldn't hate the defense attorney for, for doing the job that we're, you know, that we're function, that our function in the criminal justice system says that we're supposed to do. If we both do our jobs uh, zealously, then frankly, most of the times they should win. What? They should. They have, if they have the evidence, if they have the evidence to, to bring probable cause, if they have all these oh. cops, they have the, you know. I see what you're saying. I, I was, I guess, in my mind, when you're talking about. Most cases that are charged, Caroline, result in convictions, whether through plea negotiations or trials. Right. And what I, what I was thinking about when you were talking about the prosecutors who take it personally versus those who have compassion but can detach themselves and look at the case objectively, 
those are the cases that are, I don't want to say easiest to resolve, but work through because then the mitigation of a client or then a certain defense, you can sit down with that other lawyer for the Commonwealth and have a legal discussion about, okay, what should the outcome look like? And it's not personal between the two lawyers. And it gets usually it gets the best result for the client and it gets the best result for the system. Yeah. I mean, the context of what I was saying is that if we, we can argue, right, we can go at it in court. You know, they put their position up. I tell the judge why that's BS, you know, and we go back and forth. Judge renders the decision. My point is that after that, we've done our jobs. Mm -hmm. Don't take it personally. I don't take it personally. Right. You shouldn't take it personally. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I've had those cases where the um, the prosecutor who's not taking it personally texts after nice work or, yeah. or shakes the hand and clients after. shouldn't be at all affected by, oh, you're friendly with the president. No. We're professionals. We have jobs to do. It's not an act. We're trying to win. We believe in our in our, our facts or our cause in that particular case. But, you know, we move on after that. Right. Okay, number two. <laughs> oh, geez. Bonding with clients is key regardless of the crime. I think... Yeah. I think bond... But to... I think, I think the better way to put it is you want to know your client. You want to know who they are, what they do, what, what's gone on in their life to get them to this point. I guess that kind of bonding, I think, is really effective. And, you know, make sure that you establish a, re a relationship that promotes trust. Because right. once the client trusts the lawyer, and the lawyer has that, I guess, that bond with the client, then that makes the advocacy that much better and that much easier to facilitate. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I mean, a bond is a strong word. Trust, rapport right. uh, is what you need to have. They need to understand that they can talk to you in confidence, that you have their best interest in mind, that you're not going to mislead them, um, and that they have you know confidence in your ability to do your job. So it's more of a rapport and trust. Yeah, so we both winced at the word bonding. Yeah, I don't like the word bonding. Kind of like mental floss. <laughs> Number three, uh, secret of a criminal defense lawyer. They research jurors' backgrounds. I, I don't, I don't know. I think we it, don't really have a whole lot of opportunity to do that. Because you in pick our a jury practice. and then you start the well. The I mean, case. you know, you get a you get a fact sheet, which you know, they have questions that they've answered. You know, the generally, yeah, where they're from. Uh, what their occupation is, their age, but you know this. Uh, some of this stuff doesn't really apply to everyday practice in in Pennsylvania. Is what I'm saying. We don't have a whole lot of opportunity to do research on our on our jurors. Now you can do. Um, we've done it in criminal and in civil cases, focus like groups. focus groups. Yeah. So when you say juror and jurors' backgrounds, you can get a, an idea of a cross section of the community. What might uh, speak to uh, a cross-section of the community in a particular case and what might not. Um, but individual, you know, voir dire and all that stuff, you know, we, we don't get a lot of opportunity for that. I think it's more instinctual, frankly. You look at somebody and say, does that person look like they're going to give me a fair shot? I don't know. Voir dire, I don't think, is a science. I, I mean, I might get in trouble for saying that. I, I got my master's in trial advocacy. We learned the science of voir dire, but at the same well, time... tell me about it. What is well, it? Well, I don't know that I can regurgitate it because... I. Because the science evolves over time, um, the statistics change over time, and 
I don't know. There's some of the lectures were the voodoo of voir dire. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know that there is an exact science. Right. Um, but I think what number three is talking about also in my master's pro in my master's program, there are I learned that there are services where professional um, juror analysts can sit with the lawyer yeah. during voir dire and they look up every individual lawyer. I'm sorry, uh, juror. During voir dire, I think. Imagine selling your client on the expense of that. It's so expensive. Not in a criminal case. I think that's probably pretty rare. Right. Um, But the focus groups or the um, mock juries before a trial to prepare for a trial, those are really cool. They're cool. Okay, number four, criminal defense lawyers are always watching the jury's body language. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Yeah, but again, it's voodoo. (laughs) Yeah. No, I think you know. I I think you can generally tell who um, is with you. And who isn't? Um, and then you got to make a, a decision whether you want to try to talk to the people that you don't think are with you, or whether you just want to keep hammering the, the the people that that are that are already there and rely upon them to advocate for you in a jury room, right? But I I think you can do that. I think you can, and I think it's important. You know, I think that especially younger lawyers. Um, they're so into making their argument and doing their theatrics and asking their question. There's really only one audience that, that matters. It's not your client. It's not necessarily the judge or whoever's in the gallery watching you. It's the 12 people in the box. So I think it's important. Well, I do too, but we've seen, we've experienced when we, we could follow the jury and we've experienced when, even though we thought we were following the jury, the jury went a different way. No. Or some jurors. Yeah. Some no, jurors I mean, that we thought yeah, we had. Right. Yeah. I mean, you can be wrong. Like you said, it's yeah. not a science. But generally, body language is, is pretty easy to, not easy, but I mean, body, body language is, is instructive. Especially after days of trial when the jury's exhausted. Right. Then, you know, all, all cover is down. Mm-hmm. All right, number five. There's a reason defense attorneys stand so close to your their clients. What does it say the reason is? Well, I Cuz they're going to faint? No, humanizing. No, I th- I don't I thought that the Oh, he said because yeah. they're going to faint. Yeah, right. I do, I don't agree. I stand close to my clients to humanize them. I'm not scared of my client, neither should anybody else be. Yeah, that's important. Was that an LLM thing they told you to? No, I always did that. Oh, all right. Yeah. Did you learn anything in that? I did. Okay. I, <laughs> I, I practiced a lot in that program, which was fun. Uh, number six, a client can be their own worst enemy. Yes. 100%. Yes. Stop talking. Yes. <laughs> I mean, no matter how many times, you know, you explain, you know, don't do this. It won't help you. Um, they'll do it. Um, Not all of and, them. Right. It's true. Um, but the ones who do, man, do they do it. And the only thing you can do as a lawyer is put it in writing, man. Told you not to do that. Told you not to do it. Reinforce it in writing. And if they don't listen to you, they, they are their own worst enemy. Number seven. They and get... the, another oh, uh, corollary to that. Uh, if you know a client's going to be their own worst enemy, then you damn well better keep them off the witness stand in a, in a trial. Mm-hmm. Or keep their... Anything they say to a judge at sentencing, short or nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, number seven, they get hate mail. I don't get hate mail. I've never gotten hate mail. 
Number Does that mean we're really good or we're really bad? Let's let's go with good. I'll go with good. All right. Number eight. Have I ever gotten eight mail? I find it hard to believe. You know, there are certain lawyers who um, not only get like hate mail, but they they decide that they need to protect themselves, right? I mean, for I'm speaking of somebody very close to you, um, you know, uh, for for protecting themselves uh, with with uh, um, firearms, for instance. I mean, there's a there's an element of our profession that um, believes that every you know defense lawyer you know should be carrying you know to to defend themselves. You're aware of that, right? I'm aware of which part that that there are people that are close to us that feel that way. Yes, because they had an experience right. where their wife and child right. were threatened. Right. Decades um, ago. Right. And my and my position is uh I don't I don't I've never had that situation arise. I have. Did I ever tell you? Um reading one of these articles, I guess it was like the person's like experience as a criminal defense lawyer and they were talking about being in California and how they got jacked up by a somebody in, in custody and it, I guess it kind of turned them off to being a public defender when that happened. Well, that happened to me. Um, I was representing someone, um, I won't mention their name, but they had a well-earned reputation uh, for being um, an extremely aggressive and difficult client. Um, the, the person was huge too, like humongous. And I had a court appointed PCRA um, and I had to break the news to this individual that his PCRA had no merit. PCRA means basically you're, you've been convicted and you're trying to appeal alleging either you're innocent or that your trial attorney did something wrong. So it means post-conviction relief. Yeah, post-conviction collateral relief act or something. Uh, but <laughs> in this case, oh man. This was a combination. I had a judge who was insane, who I won't mention, who's no longer on the bench. I had um, the prosecutor was Stu Suss, who was a friend of mine, but was a total pain in, and still is a pain in the you-know-what. He's a, uh, um, uh, very, uh, uh, I'll say the word, myopic, uh, but perceived as intellectual prosecutor whose uh, you know word was bond back then in terms of you know oh my god he said he said this so it must be true and I would be like no it's not true look here's the case there but in any event I got the crazy judge I got the the uh, prosecutor who would exacerbate the anger of the client with his condescending um, argument and then there's me having to tell the, the defendant you know what in this instance, they're right. You don't have this issue. So I'm in, in the prison. I'm probably 20, 28, new, new lawyer. Um, I think I was out of the public defender's office. I think it was my first job in private practice. So this was court-appointed work. And he became the client enraged at me telling him. I, and I wasn't being a smartass. I was being... I know you find that hard to believe. I was being respectful, but I was like, you, you don't have an issue here. And he got up. I'll always remember this. And I was proud of myself because, <laughs> A, I didn't, like, you know, urinate myself. <laughs> and, B, I just – I just <laughs> that's what you were going to say. I just, I just, like – I just looked at him. I'm like, all right, dude. 
he got up like he was going to like put his fist through my skull, right? And guards came and descended on him, and I was just sitting there. Well, long story short, I mean, I I went back to the office and I, you know, explained to my partner, or I guess he was my boss then, you know, what had happened. And I'm like, I don't see a conflict here. I mean, the guy didn't fire me, so I represented him through the end of the case, but it was comical. Um, I'm glad you made it out. Yeah, you know, that's that stuff like that makes you a, a better defense attorney long term. I think I don't even know if that was responsive to the uh, to the question, but. Um, I think we were on a client can be there. Oh no, we were on. Oh, hate mail. Hate mail. Yeah. So he didn't he didn't necessarily send me hate mail, but he didn't like what I had to to say. I the only thing I had with that is um, a client that this was one of your cases that eventually I kind of inherited just by virtue of how the case evolved and how the client took to me. But he he was fair, clients always like you better than they like me. He was fairly angry at some news I had and we were sitting in the prison and he banged his fist on the metal table and banged it twice. I didn't think he was going to hit me or anything, but the guards did come over and I was like, you, you can't, you got to cut that shit out. Mm-hmm. Oh, excuse my language. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Number eight, innocent defendants can make a defense attorney's work harder. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. Ulcers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. But we have to stay, stay so calm. Because the ones who are innocent are usually the ones who will not take a plea. Yeah, right. Well, they shouldn't. And then they're they're going to trial, and right. there's just such high stakes at trial. And and to clarify, we do represent people that I believe to be innocent. I mean, we're we're not there, so we don't know whether they're innocent. But you believe in their innocence, who are faced with you know horrendous penalties and decide by way of compromise to admit to doing something, maybe that we don't think they did. Uh, the function of a defense attorney there is not to be um, um, so principled at the expense of the client. You lay it out, you inform the client, and you let the client make the decision. But yeah, those are very hard cases. I, I hate having people plead guilty who I think didn't do it, right? Mm-hmm. But if they're looking at life imprisonment, you know, or uh, or state prison, or and you know, there's... ten years in prison, loss of job, loss of family, and they're being offered misdemeanor probation or a summary offense, take it and run. Then of course, you know, and <laughs> you're not going to stand in the way of that. Um, but yeah, representing you know people that you are convinced are innocent at a trial, we went through that, and that's extremely um, uh, um, high pressure. And what I mean by that is a lot of times, a lot of the people that we represent, the way I describe it, is they're accused of doing four things. They might have done one thing, um, and we go to trial. And, you know, we argue reasonable doubt. Um, That doesn't mean that we're not wanting to win. It doesn't mean that there's not anxiety there. But when the stakes are your client's going to go to prison for 10 years for something that you're convinced they did absolutely nothing— those are different cases than ones when it, it, it's more of a degree of guilt or reasonable doubt case versus a, an actual innocence. And to be clear, we argue reasonable doubt regardless. Um, but those are that's the differentiation I think that they're making here. You know, there's mm-hmm. the reasonable doubt cases where you argue the Commonwealth can't prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, and then there's those cases that, that where we, you know, we believe our client is falsely accused and we're making that argument. There's a difference there. 
um, and it's not subtle. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's not a difference that the jury's going to see, but in terms of your own, you know, the the, the your physiological own, yeah, response to the trial, a, there's a big difference. Um, okay. Sometimes they give their clients number nine. Sometimes they give their clients makeovers. I don't know. I, I tell my clients when they're coming to court, do me a favor, take out the piercings, cover up the you dress for church. That's what I say. Be respectful to the court. Don't come in sweats. Dress for church. Huh? Act like you're dressing for church. Yeah. Mm. They they come in a button you're up. You're a churchgoer, huh? I'm not. A, well, no, I'm uh. not. But that's the, that's how to articulate it. Okay. However, they would be respectful to their place of worship or whatever. Do that with the That's court. It's awful presumptuous. Not everybody goes to a place of worship. If you can imagine what it's like to go to a place I of worship. I would just say business casual. People I would keep religion always... out of it. Can we keep religion out of criminal defense, please? Well, when I say business casual, I've had the experience of so many clients saying, well, what does that mean? Oh. Uh, and I don't want to assume. And then you say dress for church and they're like, I say oh. pretend. Actually, yes. Really? Because I don't want to assume what's in their closet. Mm. So if church is a pair of jeans and a sweatshirt that's zipped up, fine. Mm-hmm. It's just I don't want you to come in a wife beater and shorts with your boxers hanging out. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess at these days I don't have a whole lot of uh, conversations like that. But if I do, for instance, have a client who is heavily tattooed and I know that we're going to go in front of a judge who is extremely conservative, I'll say it's up to you. I'm just going to tell you that, you know, my perception of this judge is the less ink that's visible, the better. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, they can take that cue or not. Yeah, and all we can do is advise. Ultimately, it's up to the client. Exactly. All right, number 10. Criminal defense lawyers love the excitement, but trials don't move as fast as you think. Correct. Okay, number 11. <laughs> Criminal defense lawyers don't stand up as often as you think. Correct. Okay, number 12. Although, uh, in certain places, you're sitting the whole time. Other place, other courts, the the judges allow you to sit or stand whatever you're comfortable with. I tend to start sitting and then I take a hybrid, especially if showing a document. And sometimes I go back to a council table, but I'm standing. And then for argument, I usually take the podium. Um, you know me, I don't like to sit still. So you stand and you pace behind I like to pace, table. I like to move. And, you know, one of the things these days um, you have to be much more cognizant of that, you know, in, in Chester County, unlike other counties around here, you know, we opened up pretty quickly and have been in court for a long time and you do grow somewhat accustomed to the, to the mask as accustomed as you can be, but, um, it's different. Um, and I always, um, I like to be up. I, I think I do my best thinking when I'm standing and, and, uh, uh, mobile. Um, so yeah, I, you know, we do sit, you know, you're not up all the time objecting. I think that's what this is referencing. You do spend a fair amount of time sitting. And you're not standing at the witness stand, staring at the witness in the eyes. You mean the podium? Yeah. Yeah. No, no, at the witness. I mean the, the picture in this, or I'm sorry, the picture in this is a lawyer standing at the jury box. Is this at 14 or 11? This is 12 out of. Yeah. My picture was all, uh. 11. Yeah, that's weird. See, see what mine is? It's all like blurred out. Yeah, so the, yeah. the picture I have here, what I think they're talking about is when... Um, you mean in the, in the jury box? or at, Oh, at box. the witness stand. Okay, all right. All right. Or at the witness yeah. stand. Um, you see those movies where, you know, my cousin Vinny, when he goes over to the witness stand and is putting his arm up on it, you, you know, we're not doing that. Our judges wouldn't let us do no. that. Number 12, criminal defense lawyers thrive on can't win cases. 
know, I don't think we just thrive on advocacy. No, I, I agree with that statement. You do? Yep. That goes along with my prior thing. Bad defendants make good cases. I don't, why? Why? I don't remember why. <laughs> when I was, uh, <laughs> when I was in the, the public defender's office, uh, somebody once said, and this is really cynical, and I don't necessarily subscribe to this theory, although I might, um, there is nothing more exhilarating for a defense attorney than getting an acquittal for the truly guilty. <laughs> it's terrible to say. But uh, like cases that, that you shouldn't win and you win, those are great cases. Those are gratifying cases. Because we're competitors. No, I know. I guess I, I thrive when I get a great result, period. Yeah. So I, I don't thrive more when it's unwarranted than if I When do. it's unexpected? Um, I don't know. I, I guess I always expect to do well. <laughs> Look at you. Right. But, but it's, it's, well, it goes back to episode two. What my dad... <laughs> You're going to need to give me, like, a, a list of what our episodes. What my dad said, if you always do your best, no matter what the outcome... And no matter you realize what, you could say, it goes back to episode six, and I wouldn't... You'd be like, all right, well, just I'm make just, it up. I'm cueing the listeners okay. if they want to hear something uh, they haven't heard right. before. If Subtle. this is their first episode and they want right. to go back and hear something different, this mm -hmm. is where to go. So I get it now. My, my point is, is learning from that first suppression hearing I won, and that was... That's a case where you told me I was going to lose. And wasn't it exhilarating when it you was, won? But it was the first thing I ever won. Uh, so it was exhilarating nonetheless. Mm -hmm. And it was no more exhilarating than when I thought I should win. No, I disagree. I, I mean, the ones that you think you're going to lose or that you should lose and you win are the best ones. Okay. Um, number four. Oh, no, number 13. Uh, they believe the bail God, system... we are going to go through all 18 of these. How long have we been at this? Like three hours? No. All they right. believe the bail system is broken. Yeah, I think the bail system is broken, especially sure, in certain not? counties. Um, 14. Public defenders get a bad, bad rep. Absolutely. Public but, defenders... I mean, I think it varies in, you know, different... Uh, municipalities, different states, different areas. A lot of it comes down to um, not only the dedication of the particular attorneys, but the the resources that are available to them. We're fortunate to practice in a county that's always historically had a very strong public defender's office with excellent lawyers. Um, you know, and I, I'm an alum of that office, although I was only there for a little less than three years. Um, and I think uh, that they do get a bad rap. Um, I have often, probably once a month, talked to a prospective client who could not afford us, and I have told them, as opposed to spending you know, some small amount on a private lawyer, if you qualify for the public defender's office, you're go in better there. Hands, yeah. Go there, and you're going to get better representation, and you're not going to waste money on some schmuck. Who charges a really small mm, fee? There are a for, lot of schmucks that do what yeah. we do. I agree. It's it's nice to be in a county where you can say to someone who can't. It's incredible how the schmucks can just keep it going. You know what I mean? That they. I don't, don't pay much attention to them. I know they bother you. They do it because it denigrates our profession. I look past it. Okay. If if we just do a good job, then we can hopefully influence how people perceive what we do. 
Uh, all right. Number 15. The true crime TV craze is changing our approach. I don't know. I don't really agree. Maybe a little bit. You think? I mean, you, know, you can use, you know, DNA. You know, they, they're they used to watching uh, jurors are uh, those crime shows where they, you know, they get the DNA and they have a match and... You can raise the bar for the Commonwealth a little bit, you know, when you're when you're arguing a circumstantial evidence case, for instance, and you argue the lack of scientific uh, um, evidence. Um, I think juries, you know, have an expectation uh, of that evidence sometimes. So I think you can use it. I know, but does it change your approach, or does it make the jury savvy to certain issues with cases? It can change your approach because you can, you know. Y- Again, knowing your audience, right? If if they're watching shows like that, and you know what speaks, you know to them, uh, then you can highlight uh, an inadequacy of the Commonwealth's case. You know they don't have DNA here. They didn't do that. They didn't get a DNA off of the the uh, window in a burglary. You know, yeah, you can use it. I mean, you know, it's, it's number fifteen out of eighteen. Yeah, I guess sixteen. Public opinion can influence case strategy. No. I disagree. Good. Uh, I think public opinion, especially, I'll give you a basic example, the Me Too movement, public opinion of, you know, whatever's going on. And we, we've had to fashion certain voir dire questions. Strategy, though? Our strategy with voir dire, our strategy with how to address a case. Strategy to me speaks to how you try a case, how you defend it, and... I'm not going to allow, you know, me too to 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 determine the way that I defend someone. I guess, you know, maybe we're talking about the same thing in different ways. Um, you got to be mindful of it. I get that, um, you know, but uh, it's not going to change the way I I defend someone. No, but you'll be you'll be mindful of it. Voir dire questions will reflect it. What does this say? Criminal cases can often draw local or national headlines, making prospective jurors aware of the personalities and details involved. A good attorney will always take notice of which way the public tide is turning while preparing a defense. Public opinion has a huge impact on how I handle a case, Lickman says. After all, the jury is a small slice of that public opinion going into a trial, and I need to persuade them or dissuade them during my brief time before them. So it's important to know what I'm dealing with beforehand. What are the areas of concern, preconceived notions for me at trial that I need to develop or combat? Not doing so, Lickman believes, is a gross oversight. A lawyer does not do his due diligence before the trial starts in learning what public opinion is about his client or the conduct allegedly committed by his client is a lazy fool. Are you a lazy fool, Pete? I don't think I'm a lazy <laughs> fool, and I think that... Um, a lot of that, it, this to me reads uh, as as injecting yourself into public opinion, maybe giving press conferences and stuff like that. And there might be a hint of uh, self-promotion there uh, hmm. by Mr. Lichtman. Okay, number 17. No, I'm not a lazy fool. I'm an interloper, <laughs> not a lazy fool. Uh, number seven. I keep thinking of Usurper from... Uh... Game of Thrones. Oh, right, right, right. Um, 17, they don't have an obligation to disclose a client's admission of guilt. For sure. Yeah, and people, we've probably touched upon that, you know, we in prior episodes. Which episode, Caroline? All of them. Oh. Um, Yeah, I mean, we represent people. They can tell us they did it, and we can argue that the Commonwealth didn't prove they did it. If you have a problem with that, don't be a criminal defense lawyer. Damn it. 
uh, number, and that's attorney-client privilege, confidentiality. That's the client's Fifth Amendment right. It's, we don't argue innocence. We don't argue, you know, false evidence, but we can argue they didn't prove it. Uh, number 18, clients sometimes want advice before committing a crime. I've never had a client ask me for advice before committing a crime. I've had a client, I've maybe had a client um, ask how to avoid being implicated for a crime because of like a practical necessity of the circumstance, like trying to remove himself or herself from a circumstance. So I've had to walk that legal nuance, but hey, I want to go rob a bank. Can you tell me how to do that without getting caught? Or that show, How to Get Away with Murder? What did they put in here? I don't. What, it is legally and morally forbidden for lawyers to counsel anyone on the best way to commit a crime, but that doesn't stop people from asking it anyway. I get it a lot, even today, Lichtman says. If I do this, is this okay? Lichtman will tell them what's legal up to a line and go no further. All the advice is legal and above board. I treat every conversation as if someone's listening. I can't recall off the top. Oh, I'm away from my microphone. I apologize. Uh, I can't recall a time when someone prospectively asked me for advice in committing a crime. They might ask you whether something's legal, you know, like, can I record my, you know, uh, spouse on a, a telephone call? Without um, them knowing. And, you know, I can, yeah, I, I mean, I can tell them what's legal and not legal. That's not, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not going to tell them how to commit a crime or how to get away f with committing a crime. And no one's ever asked me that. Mm-hmm. Well, do you have any secrets you want to share? We went through all 18. That's a personal question. Oh, you mean about the practice of criminal defense? Mm -hmm. Secrets? Yeah, you didn't give me much advance notice I for this. I put it in you... the email. Yeah, I don't read your emails. <laughs> um, you go oh, first. Okay. Um, I, I think, I don't know if it's so much of a secret, but I wrote down permission to really enjoy my job. Uh, with the criticism sometimes that does come along with the profession we're in, mm -hmm. it's kind of like, well, how can you how can you represent someone like that or something along that line? I think when you really enjoy what you do, it makes you really good at it, mm -hmm. or better than you otherwise would be. And I think because I really enjoy what we do, I enjoy helping someone who's in a pretty unfortunate circumstance. I think that's a secret to great advocacy. So that's a secret. Well, I mean, none of these that were in the article were actual secrets, but mm -hmm. that's that's a point. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I agree with what you said there. I don't know if I have any secrets. I didn't have enough time to think about that, so I'm not sharing any secrets. Okay. All right, so I think that wraps up this episode of Subject to Cross, and we'll see you all next time. And... Um, Oh, if anybody has suggestions about what you want us to talk about, feel free to send us an email at subject to cross at com. How about that? How about that? That still exists. All right, cool. All right, let's get it going. All right, let's try to do it again uh, inside of six months. Sounds good. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye.